Yeah, we're talking about joy this semester. It's a prevailing theme in the book of Philippians. The word appears at least 13 or 14 times. And uh, we've been studying not only uh, how it's possible to have joy, but what some of the common reasons are for the disappearance of our joy, why it's so hard to retain. And, and tonight in our text, verses 12 to 18, we're going to have sort of a dirty word we have to talk about. The dirty word is obedience. And uh, generally speaking, especially once you come to college, um, you would like to eschew the entire idea of obedience and leave it behind. And, but this text is going to tell us, and it does tell us, that down here in verse 18, rejoicing and joy and gladness has something to do with obedience. The question before us, two questions. Can you actually be about obedience and still be joyful? We don't think so, actually. Can you actually prize obedience and be joyful? Conversely, if this text is true, can you forsake obedience and actually be joyful? Can you not care about growth, about becoming Christ-like, and still be joyful? So these are hard questions. The text is going to get us there, I believe. Philippians 2, 12 to 18. Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and I rejoice with you. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. All right, let's pray together. Holy Father, as is often the case in this book, we have some hard things before us tonight. Uh, There are some beautiful things here and some things that are really hard for us at the same time. Show us your goodness, your power. Show us, Lord, uh, the way forward uh, to knowing you, uh, to becoming more like you, and to experiencing joy in the life the way you would have us to do so. Pray that you would sharpen our minds as they're tired, sharpen our bodies as as we're weary. Pray these things in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Uh, When I was 12 or 13 year old, I had a strange visit to my home. I grew up in the middle of nowhere, pretty much. And uh, like the one wealthy couple that lived on our street came and knocked at our door, which was unusual. They'd never done it before or since. They owned a farm which tells you something about my county, when the wealthy people are the farmers. And uh, what they were asking for, actually, was for me to work for them. They wanted me to come to work on their farm. It was a sort of a strange job. I was supposed to take care of the calves and shovel hay and shovel poop and uh, also coach their son how to play basketball, which was by far the hardest part of the job. And um, so I took the job. I accepted. First job offer, 13. I took it. It wasn't a terrible job. I liked being outside. Besides the boy, he was terrible. Not just about, he was a terrible boy, not a terrible basketball player. Uh, a tangent. Once he, uh, he spit on me, on purpose, in the face. And his grandfather saw it and pulled me aside and says, if he ever does that again, you have my permission to beat the crap out of him. <laughs> That's a good grandpa. Anyway, um, well, after some weeks or months of doing my job, and doing it fairly well, I was pretty self-motivated. I liked to work. I had no problem with it. I got pulled aside by the wife. Um, and I don't really know what kind of role she had on the farm. 
except for this one. And it's one of those deals where, you know, I was a good kid and I was always trying to please people. So when I get pulled aside, I sort of, I'm afraid that I've done something wrong. Even if I'm pretty sure I didn't do anything wrong, it's just sort of, what did I do wrong? The fear of being inadequate or, or wrong. And then she did proceed to lecture me. And the lecture, and I still remember it, it's like 25 years ago, was something about my attitude and how attitude equals altitude. And that I had a bad attitude as I was mowing the grass and shoveling the poop. And I needed to smile more when I worked. <laughs> and I have resented that woman most of my life in that speech. Um, because I was doing my job well. Now, she did put her finger on something about me, which is I'm not the most naturally joyful person in the world. Uh, but it led me to the conclusion that some jobs you can do okay for a while without joy. But the work of the Christian life is not one of them. The work of the Christian life, although it's hard, should be accompanied by joy. It really should. And this is hard for us um, because, as this text will tell us, we have work to do. And it's not easy work. And it involves this other word that we don't like very much, obedience. And as, as far as most Christians go, and I'm saying this for both the Christians in the room and those who aren't, um, we don't do very well at this. We don't work very well. We don't obey very well, and we certainly aren't very joyful. We go about our jobs poorly, slovenly, half-heartedly sometimes, or with the wrong understanding, and certainly not with the kind of joy we should have. Some folks reason like this. God's forgiven me, therefore I can do whatever I want. I don't have to work. And uh, that's been the great lie ever since the beginning of Scripture, that disobedience is the way to joy. Um, and certainly it is the way to all kinds of pleasures, but there are consequences on the back end of that and not lasting joy. And another way of understanding this or misunderstanding it is some people say, God has saved me. He's made me right with Jesus, by Jesus. He's forgiven me. But now it's up to me to work hard. I need to work hard to fix myself so God will be pleased with me and bless me. And what these two ways of thinking do is produce people that are miserable and burned out. The first person never changes or grows up and constantly grieves God and has grieved himself and doesn't mature and therefore is never really growing or joyful. The second person is working with a miserable, slavish attitude that God will never be pleased with them. And they don't really grow either and lack joy. And what this does is presents to the whole world and all the non-Christians around us and some of you in the room that aren't sure what you think, we've given you the impression that Christians are hypocrites and immature and and frankly, it's because a lot of it's true. Because we don't know how, about, how to go about the work that we're called to very well. And what we're going to see tonight is that God is working to make his people like Jesus. Because he's working to make his people like Jesus, we must joyfully work. And what we're talking about tonight is the doctrine. Word doctrine, no one ran out the room yet? Good. The, the, the theological study of sanctification. Five-syllable word. We like those here. Uh, but we always explain what they mean. Um, Sanctification is the theology or the idea that God is at work making us holy. The word sanctify means to set apart, to make holy. And some of you are thinking, I don't want to be made holy. That sounds miserable and boring. And what I'm trying to say tonight is actually it's beautiful and it's something you really do want. Um, the idea is that God is working to make us holy like Christ. And it does involve our work. It's clear in our text. You can't get away from it. But God is the primary worker, and he's doing three things. Not all of them are very clear in this text, but they're implied. The first is that he accepts us. God accepts us. Secondly, he adopts us. And then third, he adapts us. 
accepts, adopts, adapts. If you're new, yes, I alliterate all the time. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. So God accepts us, and the question is why, on what basis or what grounds. And a quick read of this text will lead you to conclude it's because of our work. My beloved, as you've always obeyed, you're obedient people. Keep on obeying. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Aha! What I thought. This is just what I thought religion and Christianity is. You have to work hard to please God. And actually, this idea is a misguided notion of obedience. What I call misguided obedience. This understanding of work out your salvation. It rises from our own sinful nature that believes God's not pleased with us. That Jesus' death is not enough for us. That we have to work hard to please God. And if we obey, He'll be happy. There are lots of things that are wrong with this. But one that's simple, one clear problem is the question, what's the standard? How good is good enough? And we have a hint here what the goal is for God. It's down in verses 15, 16, no, 14, that you may be blameless and innocent. And however hard you may be trying, and some of you may not be trying at all, you're nowhere close to this, blameless and innocent. That's God's standard, God's goal is ultimately in the sanctification of you, if you're a Christian, to make you blameless and holy. Is your obedience, your efforts approaching this? I'll answer that question. No, it's not. Not even close. And it never will. And with this this way of thinking about obedience, that if I obey God, then he'll be pleased with me and accept me, what it produces is actually a motivation of fear. You are motivated not by God's acceptance of you. You're motivated by the fear that he won't accept you unless you perform well. And fear as a motivation works, but not very well. A good example of this is in the movie Office Space. Who's seen it? It's a bit old. It's great. If you're angling for that wonderful business job, you should watch this movie. Anyway, it's about a couple software guys, tech guys. Their company's not doing well. Another company has been brought in to assess the situation and to decide who needs to be laid off and who needs to be retained. And two guys named Bob are interviewing the main character, Peter. And they ask Peter what his week's like, and he sort of summarizes his week and then says, in reality, I work about 15 minutes a week. Yeah, that's about right, 15 minutes a week. And he goes on and says, you see, Bob, it's not that I'm lazy. It's that I don't care. You, You don't care? Yeah, it's a problem of motivation. That's right. Now, if I work my tail off and Inatech ships a few extra units, what does that mean to me? I don't see any of that. And here's the other thing. I have eight different bosses right now. Eight different bosses? Yeah, that means when I make a mistake, I have eight different guys visiting me, telling me all about it, hassling me. And all I have is the fear of losing my job. You know, Bob, that will only make someone work just hard enough not to get fired. And that's what fear does. It makes us work just hard enough to get by. And it is not a proper motivation to achieve what God is after. Blamelessness, innocence, which is actually love God and love neighbor with your whole heart. Fear will not produce that. It simply won't. Uh, Instead, our acceptance is based not on our obedience, but on Christ's obedience. This is not really clear from the text. But it's in front of this text, and it's behind this text. Last week we studied Philippians 2, 6-11 which describes how Jesus took flesh, came all the way down in his humility, took the form of a servant, went to the cross and died willingly. Why would he do that if it wasn't necessary? 
Scripture tells us all the way through that Jesus did that in order to offer perfect obedience to God because you couldn't. And in the very next chapter, we're going to look at in a couple weeks, Paul lists his spiritual resume, which is pretty awesome actually, much better than all ours. He obeyed really well. He did everything well. And at the end he says, at the bottom of his resume, this is trash. This is dung. This is refuse. It's not worth squat. And I'll give it all up for Christ's obedience, because it's by Christ's obedience and faith in what he's done that I'm accepted. We'll look at that in a couple of weeks. This is the proper ground of justification, how God makes us right and accepts us. And unless you understand that, you will be motivated by, well, either nothing, apathy, or fear. And neither one of them will produce in you the kind of growth, or change, or love that you really need to grow as a Christian, to live the Christian life. So it's not your, that your obedience makes you right with God. Uh, it's not what leads God to accept you. Uh, instead, your motive should be a glad response. Not fear, but gladness. God has accepted you, not on the basis of anything you've done, all by grace. He's looked at your resume, he's pushed it aside, and said, actually, I'll let my son do this for you. And your response, if you understand this and believe this, should be to believe that and out of glad gratitude for what God has done, then begin the hard work of becoming more like Jesus. Out of a glad, loving response and loyalty to him and not fear that you don't measure up. So first, the work that God does is he accepts us because of what Jesus has done. Secondly, he adopts us. That is, he makes us part of the family. And we see this in verse 14. Do all things without grumbling and disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked, twisted generation. He's saying here that we're children of God. He's not saying obey and be good so that you would be children of God. He's saying you are children of God. Now work hard not to complain and be blameless. Um, but it's a fact that when God accepts you, when he declares you right, when you trust Jesus, he also at that very moment adopts you. He makes you part of the family. You're not stuck off in the corner and put on probation. You're not the stepchild that's looked down on and treated differently. You are brought in to the household and treated with love as a member of the family. And this language of adoption, this language of children, sons and daughters is all through scripture. God wants you close. He treats you like a beloved child. Not an innocent, stupid child. No, he a part of the family. He wants you near. He loves you. It's a filial relationship. It's not that he wants you to be children. It's that you are his children if you've trusted in Jesus and been accepted. So when he justifies you, he adopts you. Uh, I had a pastor friend in St. Louis, and they adopted a child. And this child, for some reason, liked to be driven around the town square over and over. And uh, it was sort of like one of these courthouse square things. And... Uh, you know, there was like a statue in the middle. And his reasoning, the, the dad's reasoning was, when I do that, you know, this, the forces send you to the outside of the car. And that's sort of phone. You're a kid. Makes you slide all over the back seat. So that was it. But then one day, his son was six or seven, said something a little weird. He's like, I mean, I'm asked the question, why, why do you like to do this again? Because he assumed it was the forces. His son said something that made him question that. It's like, why, why do you like to come by here all the time? It's like, because that's where I was born. And he pointed to the courthouse. Because in his mind, the day he was adopted was the day he was born. And that's the way we sort of need to view things. Not that our birth wasn't important. Your birth is certainly important. But if you're a child of God, if you've trusted in Jesus, he has brought you into the family. Not to negate your old family, 
but you have a loving Father that's made you part of this home. And it's part of a new life for you. You're part of the family, and that means also you're part of the family business. Part of the family business here, we see in verses 14 and 15, you're called to be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked, twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. This is what God's doing. The world's not like it should be. God's not using like harsh language about the world. He actually wants these people to see the light and come to Him. And what He's saying is, as you become like me, you will reflect me to a watching world. Some of them are opposed to me. They'll have nothing to do with me. But as part of the family business, you're going to start looking like me and doing the family business, which is to glorify God and draw people to me. And as you do the family business, and as you're bought into the family, you begin to bear the family likeness. And this is always sort of fun, depending on who you are. My mother makes a huge deal about what, who people look like. All my children look like her somehow. Um, <laughs> really annoys me. Um, <laughs> meanwhile, she, she babysat two identical twins um, when I was like 10, and she swore they looked nothing alike. So this never makes any sense to me. But anyway, the reality is God, if he adopts us into his family, is out to make us into the family like us. He, likeness. He wants to make us like Jesus. The end of his accepting us, bringing us into the family, the end of sanctification is glorification, which is you will look like Jesus. And even if you're here today as someone that's not a Christian, I would encourage you to go read through the Gospels and study the life of Jesus. And I expect most of you would come and say, actually, that's someone I'd like to look like. He's the wisest, most loving, powerful, wonderful, compassionate, yet balanced and firm human being ever. Well, Scripture says God's goal in the life of a Christian is to make them fully like Jesus. It will never happen in this life. That's glorification. But it's begun. And God will continue to, to make us more like him. More in the family image. The reason, by the way, that we are really told here not to grumble or dispute, which we're really good at, we're good complainers, is because this is life in the household. And actually the words here, grumble or dispute, means like to complain about or to fight within. This is household life. This is family life. You've been brought into the family. And what he's saying is, brothers and sisters, you're part of the family. Stop, stop fighting with each other. Stop, stop bickering with each other. Love each other. You're being made like Jesus. So by virtue of being brought near, close to the Father, you're being made like the Son, you're living with other people that are doing the same thing. And um, the question is, is that your understanding of obedience and holiness, what God's after, to bring you close and to make you like Jesus? I expect it's not. I expect for most of you, your idea of obedience is I have to do something to measure up so I will be something great. And the reality is just the opposite. Holiness, this is Martin Lloyd-Jones, a great British pastor who's now dead, but holiness is not something we're called upon to do in order that we may become something. Rather, it's something we're to do because of what we already are. Because you already beloved children set apart, you're to pursue holiness. You're supposed to work this out, become more like Jesus and this requires you to do something you don't want to do while you're in college, which is live close to home. I mean, some of you do want to live close to home because you're good sons and daughters. But most of you love your freedom and you don't want to live close to home. Uh, and what I mean here is you have to live close to the Father. If you've trusted Jesus and He's brought you near by the blood of Jesus, poured out His love for you, pouring out His life for you, if you actually want to be like Him, you have to be near Him. You have to pursue Him. He gives us all kinds of ways to do that. And he doesn't leave it to us to whip ourselves into shape. Instead, he 
moves in and gets to work. Lastly, he adopts us. He adopts us and he adapts us. He accepts, he adopts, he adapts. Verses 12 and 13, uh, we see that we're called to work out our salvation in verse 12 with fear and trembling. We'll talk about that in a moment. Uh, For it's God who works in you. The reason why we're called to work, the reason why we can work, is because God is already at work in the life of someone who trusts in Jesus. It's his work first. He works in you to will and to work. In other words, complete apathy should not be part of the life of a Christian. Because God's at work in you, actually giving you the desires to be different. And and it's important to notice who this God is. The God who's working in the Christian is, in Scripture, the same God that creates the universe by the word of his power. Like, go read Genesis. He said, let there be light. There's light. It's the same God who raised Jesus from the dead who does the impossible because of his power. That God is at work in the life of Christians in order to make them like Jesus. That's not the way most of us think about it. Most of us think, this is up to me. I have to fix myself. I've got to, if I'm going to get out of this addiction, get out under from this habit, I've got to think differently, do differently. It's up to me. And we don't stop and realize the God of the universe loves us and is at work in us. And he works continuously. He doesn't work in fits and spurts. He, chapter 1, we looked at this. He started the work, and he'll work at it till he's done. He'll carry it on to completion. So, you. You're called to work, too. And unless you understand who this God is, the God that accepts you in Jesus brings you into the family because he loves you, wants you near, you will not work well. You will work out of a slavish fear, trying to impress him or please him. Perhaps you just won't care very much at all because there's no really reason to work. You have no motivation whatsoever. But if you understand what Christianity is all about, a God that accepts you because of what Jesus has done and draws you near because he loves you and wants you and wants to make you more beautiful, then you have a different motivation. Then you actually want to work. Then you have the will that he's talking about. And you will work. You will work. And I know some of you Christians, I talk to you. You've grown up in environments where you know almost everything it is about Christianity, or so you think. And yet, it's really easy just to say, well, I don't know what I think about it. I'm very apathetic. And I understand. But the Christian life does involve working. Working out what God's doing in you. Let me ask you a question. Who's the, uh, this will be fun, who's the, uh, who's the best coach in college football? You don't care about college football here in Pittsburgh. Who's the best coach in uh, professional football? Just thought of a name. What's that? Mike Tomlin. Okay, I would actually say Bill Belichick, but we'll take Tomlin. Um, I didn't say he had to be fair. Um, anyway, would you want Mike Tomlin on your team? No, you wouldn't. Mike Tomlin's 39 years old and can't play. He's old and slow. Now, you want him as your coach. But if you had a 53-man roster, you wouldn't want him on your team. Because as a member of a team, you actually have to work. You have to do something. And for some of you, you know a lot about Christianity, but you don't work. And you've never worked. And you're not the coach. It's not enough just to know a bunch of stuff. 
to be a part of the team, you actually got to work. And it's not all up to you. But that knowledge that He's given you of what God's done for you and how He's made you close, you're to take that knowledge and work it out. What does it mean to work it out? Well, you've you got to bring to the surface what He's already doing. You have to work out the implications. And uh, it's not easy. But what you've been trying to do is downright impossible, which is fix yourself. So this should encourage you if you're a Christian. You actually can change. You actually can grow. Maybe you don't want to. And if that's the case, we need to have another conversation. Do you really understand what God's done for you and what He desires for you? But if you've trusted Christ, He's accepted you, adopted you, and He's working on you, you will change. You will grow. It may be slow, very slow. (laughs) But that's okay. The uh, slowest growing tree in the world is the white cedar. It's found in parts of Canada. And uh, one particular tree specimen they found was uh, said to have grown less than four inches, period. It weighed less than a half an ounce. And uh, it was found to be 155 years old. It grew on average 0.003 ounces per year. Yet, it was still alive and growing. Now, I would hope that if you're someone that really loves Jesus or nobody has done for you, that you would grow a little better than that, faster than that. <laughs> but the point is the same. If you're alive in Jesus, you should be working out and growing what he's working in you. And that's not doing something spectacular or something awesome. Those things are great. Go do something spectacular and awesome. It is coming back over and over to the reality of who God is and what he's done for you. You will not grow apart from him. It's in the gospel as you reappropriate it, come back to the message over and over that you become more like him. Holiness is nothing but implanting, writing, and realizing the gospel in our souls over and over and over. If you're not a Christian, or you're not sure what you are, what you think about it, um, I do want you to at least come away tonight realizing this is what the Christian life is supposed to look like. Not perfect people. Not anywhere close. But there's a trajectory. God's at work in us. We're not who we're supposed to be. But we've been made part of the family. It's a good family of love. And God's making us ever more like Jesus. And that's a good thing. He's slowly freeing us, hopefully, from the tyranny of our own vices, our own selfishness, our addictions, making us more like Jesus, which is a beautiful thing. All right, let's pray together.